everyone, and welcome to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seski. As you know, we're kicking off with a new season, moving across the table to chat with unique investors. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Aman Verji, a founder of Practical Venture Capital. Aman, thanks for joining me. Very welcome. Thank you for having me. Before we kick off and discuss everything from your early law school days to PayPal and eBay, tell us a little bit about the new fund and what your goal is in really creating a unique venture opportunity for new investors with Practical. Sure, I'd love to. So the name of the firm is Practical Venture Capital. It was started about a year and a half ago now. And the, the investment thesis for the firm is secondary fund that buys out LP interests from existing funds that we like. So we're finding and sourcing successful venture capital firms where we like the underlying assets and can diligence them. Typically with these successful firms, they go through a J-curve, meaning the first five years or so have IRRs that are depressed because you're pulling fees out of the funds, you're writing off your losers, and there are a lot of early seed stage and early stage bets in venture that just don't pay off. And that tends to manifest in the first five years of a fund, roughly. Then the successful companies get to Series B, Series C, Series D, and beyond. So they take over the portfolio, and that's when the performance increases and the IRRs improve, and you're, you're, you're through the nadir of the J-curve and, and onto the good stuff. So we figured, why not just skip the J-curve, go right into the, the successful venture funds that we like, and buy them. And there's not a lot of activity in that space right now in venture. There's a very active secondary market in public companies, obviously, a lot of private companies now. Private equity funds have had a lot of secondary players over the last 5, 10, 15 years. Not so much in venture. So we're able to buy into these funds at a 10, 15, 20, 30, 40% discount to the fair value of the fund. And that gives us a head start. When you're buying a growing successful portfolio companies at that kind of a discount, the returns we think will be will be great. The uh, the risk returns favorable. And then it's a lot shorter to get your time back on a, on a secondary fund. It's usually a three to five year timeline to get your money back with, with the multiple, as opposed to venture now, which is 10 to 15 years to get your money back. So you're offering a unique entry point, a shorter duration, and Correct. potentially better returns. So tell me, how did you identify this fund structure? You mentioned that there's some, you know, our audience is, has been mostly CFOs, and I've talked to a broad array of public company CFOs, private company CFOs, everyone from startups to, uh, you know, major public companies, and they're yeah. very familiar with the J-curve. So how did you identify this marketplace, which may seem like a no-brainer if you think about it now, but somebody had to start. So how did you identify Practical's niche? Well, it's the secondary markets have been around for a while in other asset classes. It's not a new idea, but it's a new application to a new asset class. And I think the inventor, there wasn't a need for secondary markets, even into 2005, 2008, 2010. I was at PayPal early. I joined in 2001. That company went public in four years. From founding all the way to the IPO and liquidity, it was a four-year exit. Yahoo, Amazon, eBay, they were all four to five-year exits. So there was not a, not a terribly long time for returns to getting, getting your, your money back. Hmm. The biggest IPOs now in the venture community is so Airbnb is you know, 15 years and in, in, uh, in counting to get their liquidity back. Palantir was 17 years and counting. All the biggest companies now are taking much, much longer to get their money back. So there's much more demand for on the investor side for that kind of liquidity around year eight, year 10, year 12, year 15. That's a fairly new phenomenon really over the last 10 years. And that's, where, that's what we're capitalizing on. That's brilliant. It feels as almost that you've perhaps had some experience in this realm. So let's take you back all the way to leaving Stanford. It's mid-90s. The internet craze is happening. What are you thinking about in your early days in just 
exploring the fintech and payment architecture of the world, really. Let's refocus from practical now. Yeah. Let's put us right back into, into that environment because I know it's a, a pretty storied piece of the venture capital story. Yeah, I had the good fortune of being at Stanford and studying in economics and political science in the, uh, the late 90s. I met Peter Thiel when I was here at Stanford undergrad. He was at the law school. And so we ran in some of the same circles and, and met. And some of the other folks I just went to school with were David Sachs, who was later the CEO of PayPal, Eric Jackson, who was the CMO of PayPal. And so we were, we were friends in the, in, the, in the late 90s, even before you know, PayPal was a thing and before Peter Thiel was Peter Thiel. My first job out of Stanford was actually on Wall Street. I was in financial engineering at Lehman Brothers for three years as a, a fixed income trader and an analyst. Learned a ton about finance, had a, had a total blast, really enjoyed my time at the firm. Stayed in touch with Peter and the, uh, and the folks who then later on founded PayPal. I didn't, I didn't join them very early on at the onset. I uh, chose to go to Harvard Law School instead. And I think a lot of that was just, you know, I, was, uh, I grew up in Canada. I was born in East Africa. I had that immigrant mindset and that, that mom who was telling me, go to school, go to school, go to school, get an education, become a lawyer or a doctor. That was my parents. Didn't understand Wall Street, didn't understand finance, you know, skeptical of business, had no idea what PayPal was and very strongly encouraged me not to go down that uh, the tech route or that entrepreneur path. So I got that itch scratched by going to grad school and getting that degree. Peter, to his credit, tried to talk me out of going to law school. He had been down that path and thought I shouldn't go and offered me a job and I said no. But upon graduating from Harvard, I then returned and came back to PayPal and then, you know, had a 10-year run there. I was, uh, ended up, my first job there was customer analytics and, and crunching a lot of the data for the team. And then my, my last job there was running, running finance for PayPal and, and for their business side. So had a long, you know, good, uh, good outcome there. Yeah. So you took, um, I don't know that everyone has the capacity to use Harvard Law as a hedge, but the, uh, <laughs> your, your parents convinced you that that was a smart move, but you ended up finding out maybe a little bit more about yourself, which was that you were kind of right. destined for the entrepreneurial world in general. So that's right. I will say I really enjoyed my time at law school. I think I knew going in, I wasn't going to be a practicing lawyer. And you might ask, well, why would you go to law school if you don't want to be a lawyer, which was Peter's question to me. And I think in that, in that moment of self-reflection, I just realized this is going to be a golden opportunity to go to, you learn constitutional law from Lawrence Tribe and criminal law from Alan Dershowitz. And I still remember being harangued by Elizabeth Warren uh, over, uh, I can't even remember, some kind of contract, you know, corporations uh, case, which I didn't fully read or understand. And she just hammered me on it. And you just learn so much. I don't agree with all those people and all their politics are, are on every answer, but you learn about critical thinking, seeing both sides of an issue. And, you know, it's good. It's good training for whatever you want to do later. So I, I think I put it to good use. Wait, so Aman, are you saying that when you left law school, you were actually being prepared to run a major corporation, not just <laughs> just startups? I don't think I, I don't think I knew it at the time, but I think I was being prepared for, you know, for being in the same rooms with people like Peter and Elon, for sure. Well, that probably brings us into a, a decent segue into those days, right? So walk us through, you, so Peter approaches you at Stanford, an undergrad, and you yeah. say no, right? Or after yeah. your friends and he's got PayPal up and running. So PayPal gets initial investments and is now tearing away at becoming a big piece of our payment architecture here. Yeah. And so walk us through the earliest days of PayPal and how you joined the team, because I know that there was a very tight knit group who were yeah. already there. You turn them down and then I don't think you just waltz back in. Right. So you join the team and you've got ideas about strategy and all this new education you're ready to deploy. What were those early days like at PayPal? Yeah, my first interaction with Peter was really before PayPal was making money. 
they weren't totally sure about their business model. There was an idea about making money on the float. So we take in customer balances and, and buy these customers at some exorbitant price, and then somehow make money on the interest rate differential by holding their money. And we just didn't, we didn't really know. And the use case mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't very strong at the time. It was like beaming money to people. I remember Peter taking me to you know, lunch at University Avenue and trying to, you know, trying to talk to me about the company. And uh, I asked him what he was going to use it for, what he used PayPal for. And he's like, well, you got this BlackBerry and you can use this BlackBerry to beam money to your colleague and like split up, you know, a pizza lunch. And I thought that's mildly interesting, but it doesn't seem like a very compelling business idea. And I remember talking to my mom about it later and she was like, I don't understand why, like, why can't you just pay me with cash? And I'm like, well, cash is, you know, it's, it's dirty. People don't like it. Uh, you have to split the money. This is like technology and it's functional and it's, it's clever. And she's like, you are an idiot. You should go to Harvard Law School. Nobody's going to beam money to, you know, I'm not going to, I can't figure out my BlackBerry to beam money to, to you to split my lunch bill. Here, here, here's money. Here's $5.05. It's cash works perfectly fine. So I think I recognized that there wasn't really a problem being solved with that business at the time. And they were struggling to figure out that, you know, that opportunity. And what, what began as a, uh, as kind of this big idea about payments infrastructure really coalesced into how do we solve the problem for eBay sellers who were trying to sell things on the eBay platform and let's just zero in and focus on that. And, uh, and that was their first big market was eBay at the time was a marketplace where people were taking checks and money orders and cash and checks and, and everything was taking a week to clear. People would send money orders and checks through the mail and you'd cash them. That was like 95% of the eBay business. Sellers didn't take credit cards. And so PayPal enabled sellers to sell on the platform, take credit cards, make every payment electronic. It cut the time to clearing a check from two weeks to two days. Uh, and then eventually to you know two minutes because everything got integrated on the eBay platform. So it solved a major problem for uh, for eBay. At that point, they were making money and they knew their market. And that's actually when I joined and became part of the team. The very first thing they did for them was to write their S1, which is the the legal doc, as your yeah. as your colleagues will know before you go public. So I had the honor of drafting the first the first draft of the S1 alongside the Morgan Stanley bankers. Peter wanted someone on our team to have control over the process, just to control the messaging and not totally outsource it to bankers. So I was I was that guy, the junior guy on the IPO deal team. You know, I had all these ideas about strategy, as you said, but I was just fundamentally I was the analytics guy, doing what I was told, trying to figure it out. Um, using numbers and data to challenge assumptions and help to inform the product team, that that became a role in finance. That became the FP&A team. And that became the strategy team. What do you credit your ability to do that with? Was it education, experience? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, our audience will understand that T plus yeah. fourteen versus T plus two uh, is a pretty <laughs> significant difference. So yeah. we can use whatever language we'd like to describe it. But you had both the technical skills and the entrepreneurial spirit with immigrant parents who wanted you to hedge your risk. And you took all of that. And I'm kind of curious as to what you personally credit uh, your ability to do so. And then we shouldn't overlook the fact that then you were a CFO for eBay. Post, Post, yes. I think at the outset, it was uh, what I think was the the determining factor for that PayPal team was that they were very unified in in their vision and how to approach things. There were, you know, we talk a lot about diversity and bringing different perspectives together to form great teams. And there is something to that. But the reality was this team and some of the best teams I've ever been on, they aren't diverse in a couple of important ways. This team was all, they were all very hard driving, very smart and intelligent, but also very much data driven and willing to give and take. And there was no, you know, no personal feelings, no animosity that came into that room with David Sachs and Max Lepshin and Peter Thiel. We'd look at data, we'd look at information, we'd use that to make decisions, we'd test and learn. People had, you know, ideas about different markets to go after, but we let everyone have a shot at it and try the market out. And then we would just let the data talk. And it was a very quick adaptive team as far as like letting, uh, just being truth seeking and letting information work. 
mm. and using data to make decisions. David Sachs had some very strong intuitions about the product, which was great. Uh, he's one of the best I've ever seen about some of those intuitive user experience questions, but everything was analytical. Everything was test and learn. Everything was hypothesis driven. Nothing was ever personal. And Peter and David, they were very, um, they were all good friends and we've stayed close, which is good. But when it's, when it's business, it was all business and it was all very much data driven. So you were able to leave a lot of ego at the door then to be able to say, yeah. we really trust everyone to put in the quality data that we need to be able to rely upon it for strategy. Is that right? Yeah, very. that was very much so, very much so. And very different, I think, on the eBay than the eBay side, which became a lot more political and siloed. Right. Well, we're going to get to Sonos and 500 startups in a moment here. But just following that up with a quick aside regarding how do you create that type of culture at a new firm? So practical is relatively new. How do you start yeah. an organization with something that's that created by you know just experience? You knew that that's the way to have successful outcomes. How do you start yeah. that from a culture standpoint up front? So I think the early PayPal secret was um, a lot of us knew each other going in. So there was uh, already a, uh, a desire to work together and, and to get the right people involved. A lot of those early folks, whether it was uh, Peter or David or Eric Jackson or myself, we were all part of that Stanford network and alumni. We'd all worked together or been together you know, on some journey before. So there was just familiarity and uh, some common experience. It was also very, the PayPal interview process was also pretty unique. It was really just Peter asking me a lot of tough logic questions and uh, being, uh, you know, not caring about background or what I'd done before, where I'd been. I mean, the education was was a part of it only because we'd been together, but there were a lot of non-Stanford people who who came to PayPal. And what, what they did in the interview process was a very rigorous, demanding, uh, onboarding kind of question Q&A process. And the interviews were, were very similar. And you just use that process to identify people who had a preference to, to go after answers with data, to be okay with conflict and not take things personally. I remember going in and I'm, I'm not even sure I knew what my first job title was because it was so much chaos at the company. I asked Peter for a job description and a job title and he made something up. And then within three weeks, it changed. And then I ended up on David Sachs's team. And then the job title changed again. It didn't bother me at all. There was no hang up about, oh boy, my job title's changing. I don't know what my salary is. Like I just sort of trusted the team to figure it out and that it would it would work out because we had trust among each other and, and some common understanding on the business strategy. And that's I think a recruiting challenge to finding people who have that, you know, that shared mindset. Well, this next question is going to be twofold because we need to both address one of the more legendary stories of PayPal and going into the recession in 2008. It's a great story, and you tell it better than anyone. And then I need to I need to refocus us a little bit and continue the, the podcast into, you've also been a great CFO across a number of companies as well. And the title of the podcast, The Modern CFO, Yeah, I have to ask what your opinion is on what makes a modern CFO, whether it's data-driven strategy or having the EQ to build the team and you know transparency and accountability that you just described. Yeah. Uh, just we have to hit that story because it's legendary and it cements you into venture capital history for all time. And it's you know bring bring many smiles to all of our listeners just from the exactness of how it portrays all of the personalities of those involved. Okay. And uh, let's tie right back with the the title of the podcast if that works Perfect. for you. Perfect. Awesome. I want to hear about about 48 hours prior to the Great Recession, it's 2008, and PayPal is doing uh, fine, but you need to fundraise. So what's going on? What's running through your head and what happens? Okay, this is the, uh, this is actually back in March of 2000. This was the dot-com crash. 
Oh. It was the internet bubble. This is when PayPal had just merged with X.com, which was Elon Musk's company. X.com was a, was a bank, Peter Thiel's Confinity, and PayPal was a payments company. The two had merged. They were bringing their services together, burning tremendous amounts of cash, like everyone was back in you know, February of March 2000. And they were, uh, they were fundraising and trying to close a $100 million deal. Had been talking to Sequoia as the lead investor, and, and we're, we're trying to close that deal. And Peter and Elon were kind of the co-CEOs of the, of the company at the time. So uh, Elon had, had some, he'd had some success before. He had sold a company to, to Compaq for hundreds of millions of dollars. And as Elon, you know, liked stealing, he spent some of his money and uh, bought a McLaren F1 sports car. Beautiful, you know, million dollar sports car purchase. Somehow he and Peter decided to take the McLaren F1 on the drive to Sand Hill Road to Sequoia on this fundraising trip, which seems like a, a, a bold move. And of course, Elon's behind the wheel. <laughs> and this is February of 2000. So... Okay. Here they are on, you know, going for their, going to close the deal with Sequoia. They're driving on uh, on 280 on a Sandhill Sand Hill Road. It's early in the season that it probably rained a little bit. And so the roads are a little bit slick. And I've, I've heard now Elon and Peter both tell the story. To hear Peter Thiel tell the story, Elon was trying some kind of new move with the McLaren, something about accelerating very quickly and shifting into high gear as it came off the exit on 280. Sounds on like a heel toe maneuver that went maybe a little south. Yeah, maybe. Although I think the I don't I'm not sure the uh, the clutch the Formula One transmission had the uh, had the heel toe clutch. I think he was throwing it on the on the steering wheel, and basically he accelerated around the uh, you know around this exit. And just again to hear Peter tell it, the car took flight. It actually left the road. It was going so fast and a little bit out of control, and then came completely out of control and crashed into the side of the road on the exit on Sandville Road. From later conversations, I've, I've learned that people who saw that happen thought that the passengers were dead. Like they drove right to the accident and then he didn't even stop, just assumed that there was, uh, you know, that there were casualties. It turned out that Elon and Peter both survived. I guess that's a, a credit to McLaren and their cockpit engineering. No damage. This is, this were, is now a sponsor of the podcast, the McLaren, if you're listening. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and the good news is that they turned out fine. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the meeting with Sequoia ended up, Peter ended up going to the meeting by himself Elon couldn't make that meeting. He was by the side of the road, making sure the McLaren got towed properly. But Peter went to went to the meeting with Mike Moritz on Sandhill Road uh, at Sequoia, and he he closed the deal. And he closed the hundred million dollar deal. This is in again late February of two thousand, and it's perfect timing because like a couple of weeks later, the Nasdaq crashes. All of a sudden, a lot of these companies that are burning cash are in trouble and and don't make it. And uh, and PayPal was one of the survivors, and in, in large part that funding helped. But that was an unusual way to take a fundraising meeting. I'll tell you that. Well. Yeah, that is ridiculous. Uh, the story is a big piece of all this because it ended up being so instrumental to so much of our payment infrastructure and really also fostered the minds of a lot of lead engineers and really around, I know you said you started in banking around financial infrastructure, but PayPal was yeah. also a big piece of creating a lot of the bright minds that allow, I know you just did a great JP Morgan event and all of the listeners should go back and find those early stories about, you know, the other brilliant minds you are around, but they're still chipping away at the infrastructure to create streamlined solutions for all of us today. And while your mother may have said that cash was king, I think we're in a very, we had an incredible digital push over the last uh, year and a half through the pandemic. And a lot of big questions are being answered. And I really like that uh, all the early PayPal employees are now thought leaders in a lot of different spaces. So that's very cool. So yeah. refocusing a little bit onto the modern CFO question. 
So you also went on to be the CFO of not only eBay's North American operations, you also did Sonos. Is that right? Yep. Being a CFO in those types of companies where you're coming in as the CFO, can you walk us through a little bit of what you're thinking about? And ideally, when you discuss what you feel is a modern CFO, I'd love to start taking some of those lessons and redirecting us towards practical as to what you look for in venture funds that you'd like to invest in or individual firms that you'd like to invest in. Because I'd imagine those uh, lessons are at least interconnected, if not directly related. Yeah. I think with the uh, with the CFO job as it is today, there's there's a couple of large functions you have to be proficient in. There's the, I guess, the traditional or the uh, you know the accounting function, which is really about understanding and applying accounting principles, backward looking, making sure stuff gets done and operational and um, that communications infrastructure is running well. That is one job. And it's a big one. And it's kind of the traditional controller function. And that's always been part and parcel of the finance function and, and, and will never go away. There's increasingly another aspect around treasury and man- managing cash and making sure, especially in global businesses, that all the functions are adequately capitalized and that you've got the right liquid resources where you need them. And that's a big problem in, in venture and venture backed companies. They just, they never have enough liquid cash. There's a lot of, a lot of paper valuations. A lot of investors are locked up for five, 10, 15 years. So that's a, that's a big challenge. Then I think the third part is just the, uh, the business facing, how do you um, help a team make good decisions and how do you, how do you use data and use analytics in order to inform those decisions. If you're a, uh, you know, in that early PayPal context, that was a big part of finance. That's that's what Peter wanted in the finance role. It wasn't someone who would keep the books and keep the accounting and just make sure that we were, were compliant with everything. It was also like, how do I use data? How do we use analytics to make product decisions and test and learn things? I'm, I'm challenging myself on whether this experience works. What's the checkout conversion rate? What is the, you know, what is the uh, completion rate on these different payment flows? How do we make money? How do we monetize all of it? And when the customer is happy, how does that then translate into the financials so we can give good guidance and, and just manage the business? It's resource allocation, it's financial planning, it's budgeting, forecasting. And that's you got to be good at all those aspects of the role today as a CFO, be able to use the technology and the systems available to be good at it. And I think that's the, you know, the last 20 years, that's been the big push in the industry. And um, that combination of like of the, uh, the data analytics and the narrative and being able to tell the story about the business is really what makes a great CFO, I think. Right. So you've got to be able to balance the actual very hard work of doing the data analytics, but then you also have to have the ability to communicate the results, not just yep. to the CEO, but to investors, to the public, yeah. company, to all shareholders. And do you think that that has shifted? We've had a number of CFOs say the most important thing is having a great relationship with your CEO. If you can explain all the work you're doing to him or her, that's great. Then you're going to have a successful relationship. And that really drives everything. Others have said, the CFO role is for data scientists today, right? You need to <laughs> yeah. communicate not just across heads of teams, but all of those teams have individual data silos that need to be able to communicate with each other. It's a mix of IQ and EQ that's pretty rare. And it's interesting to me from your background because you did have you did have formal some formal banking background. You did have some formal yeah. uh, law school background. So you definitely had all of the analytical tools, but being able to communicate those results are, you know, it's a, it's a big challenge for a lot of people who are, you know, either right or left-minded in a way. So it's unique to find a CFO who can do the whole job. It almost seems as if the demands are really changing aggressively and that you need to be equally as prepared to communicate the results that you come to. Yeah. 
I think it is the left brain, right brain confluence of what, what makes a great CFO. It's certainly a good relationship with the CEO doesn't hurt, but that's not, you know, that's not enough. I think, I think now all the members of the team, whether it's your head of marketing, head of HR, they're all going to have some data science facility now. It's just, it's just part and parcel of business everywhere. So you have to be able to communicate to all those heads and the entire team about what matters to be able to store data and make it a single source of truth. That's, that's often a problem in big companies. And, you know, like it or not, finance is always going to be seen as a objective repository of the, of the information that then gets communicated to boards. That's how you pay bonuses. Like if your data is not, if your data is wrong, that's a terrible consequence of the whole organization. If the head of marketing is using, you know, uh, imperfect data or some of the analytics isn't, isn't perfect, even if it's off by, by 1%, they'll make mistakes, but it's probably not the end of the world. It's not, it doesn't endanger the business in, in most cases. Product engineers take shortcuts and you know make make quick data driven assumptions. Finance has got to be right, and you have to you have to be able to uh, double click and understand some of the flaws in in how data is being kept, how it's being used. You have to be facile with statistics and be able to communicate all these concepts across different teams. That's really, I think, the challenge to CFO job. Got it. So you know exactly what to look for in a modern CFO, and I'm sure that informs a lot of your strategy when you're looking into funds to invest, practicals, LPs capital. So right. walking through your time at 500 Startups, this is in your first really position into the venture investing world. And right. your whole life has been revolved around unique founders with, uh, I'm sure, small egos and no hubris. Um, so walk me through how you got really situated with 500 Startups. And let's talk a little bit about what you learned there, because it's so relevant to what you're doing now with Practical. Yeah, my uh, my job there was chief operating officer. So we had 150 employees and contractors all over the world, and we had probably a dozen funds and 600 million in AUM and uh, across all those funds. So my responsibility was to run investor relations. I also had the uh, the accelerator program, which which has uh, really put 500 on the map. About 10 years ago, um, all those functions reported up to me, and uh, so it wasn't it wasn't a uh, finance oversight role, but it was a uh, business oversight role. So a bit of a you know a bit of a evolution from my uh, my finance experience, but all you know all kind of all kind of works together. And in that role in particular, a lot of the a lot of the challenge was raising new funds, figuring out which companies we wanted to invest in, and how that process would scale across these different funds in different geographies, and then how to communicate that to the limited partners and the investors, and how do you how do you tell that story for fundraising purposes. And the funds are all performing well, so that's that was great. That made the job a lot a lot easier. I got there because of my colleague Dave McClure. Dave and I knew each other at PayPal twenty years ago, and we've been friends ever since. Um, this is our practical venture capital is myself and Dave now. So we're you know talking about that good CEO relationship. That's always something I've I've um, I've benefited from, and and Dave and I are now starting this venture together, and we're doing all the things that that I think are you know are right for venture now. Like ten years ago, an accelerator and seed stage investments. That was the um, the hot thing: how to drive excess returns, how to how to find companies and and identify those winners over the long term. Now there are a lot more accelerators. It's a much more competitive space in uh, in venture. A lot more seed capital, a lot more early stage funds. But the secondary opportunity is massive. And as I said before, in you know in venture, it's, it's almost nobody doing it. It's now happened in private equity, and it's uh, it's happened in other asset classes. But in venture, it's still very very new. So you found maybe one of the few remaining. It's probably ultra competitive still. Uh, we were talking earlier about just the onslaught of IPOs and the newly minted family offices who would love to invest in entrepreneurs who remind themselves of 
what they look like at one time in their careers. So I know that there's definitely a, a bias to, to financing entrepreneurs through direct investments. And there are dozens and dozens of new family offices. So the ecosystem yeah. just changed so dramatically, even over the last few years. So I feel like practical is almost a response to the demands of the ecosystem, as opposed to uh, another competitor amongst a, a very saturated and crowded space, which is also, you know, yeah. antithetical to venture in itself, which is high diversification, unique opportunities. So you've you've found a way to also position yourself in just a, a unique marketplace. I do yeah. want to talk a little bit about how the 500 startup experience has maybe helped identify that. Was there a moment where you had the actual formation of practical, something that you'd been considering for a long time, or was it a identification of the ecosystem has changed, the marketplace has changed, the investors look a little bit different and it needs an answer, or was it a, you know, thoroughly planned? I've seen this over the course of my entire career, you know, this chronological linear or, uh, you know, immediate response. It was a bit of an evolution. I think at 500, we, uh, we realized the, Early seed stage game was getting very, very crowded from, uh, you know, from 2005 to 2010, there was really just Y Combinator, Techstars, and then 500. And those were the big accelerators in the space. Now there's probably 30 or 40 like that. And they're all, they're all very good and very competitive. And a lot of them are just giving it away for free. They're like Stanford has an accelerator. UChicago has an accelerator. They let companies in. They don't charge them a fee. They'll give them hands-on, you know, hands-on help and uh, access to operating partners. So the just differentiating in that space is increasingly difficult. And what we recognized probably a few years ago was the as these funds are getting longer and longer with no liquidity back to LPs, there's just pent up demand from you know from sellers who've been in, in a great fund for eight years, ten years, twelve years, haven't gotten their money back. You know the fund is maybe up six x, seven x, nine x on paper, but family offices have they want to rebalance their portfolio. They've got cash flow needs. They have liquidity problems. And so they want to be able to sell. And there's just no, no one's doing it in that market right now. There's no, no market for venture or secondary right now. We, we're literally buying great portfolios at a 30% discount to fair value. And there's no bidder. There's no, no, we are the only bidder, you know, who's, who says, I'll take that portfolio of nine great companies and a lot of other companies you may never heard of, but, but we like, and we'll, I'll pay you 30% less than the fair value. The, the challenge in the space is you don't, um, they're all private companies. So you don't have a lot of information about the companies. But that's where Dave and I excel. We've been investing in private companies and figuring out, you know, how to diligence and source intel about them for for years now. Um, and then there's the valuations, and the valuations are oftentimes what the GP puts on a company. There's some back and forth with auditors, but there's a lot of leeway around it. So how do you know the valuation's good? How do you test that, and how do you appropriately price the the uh, the portfolio? And that's where just having a finance background and some facility around valuations and policies and being able to, you know, get to the bottom of it. Uh, is uh, is so valuable in the space, and there aren't, aren't a lot of aren't a lot of VC teams that have a combination of like Dave and I do investment experience, track record investing in early stage, and a CFA or you know a, a finance type on the team. Yeah, that's really important. I mean, I I think about the fact that it's very difficult to even value an individual portfolio company, let alone what it means. Also, yeah. it's it's uh, you know back to basic economics, what somebody's willing and able to pay for, right? So. The need for liquidity is a really, really interesting topic, especially amongst the, you know, the power players of the VC world. You don't necessarily think of GPs of major VC funds of needing liquidity, but the LPs may. And I think it also is really interesting to consider the fact that one of the reasons you may have been able to identify this need from your COO position 
could have been yeah. the investor communications piece of what investors were really looking for, right? So if, if companies are staying private longer and longer, yeah, you know, you're waiting and you're not being communicated with, you know, how much are you valuing the investment you originally made? And yeah. if you just don't hear from anyone, you're going to assume it's not really worth much. Otherwise, you'd hear good news. So I, yeah. I actually think the investor communications piece may have been a really valuable asset to the formation of being able to identify this unique need. Yeah, I think being in a fundraising role and talking to LPs every quarter, it's uh, it is kind of eye opening about what they what they care about because you can have a there were multiple quarters when we had a, a great quarter, a couple of companies announced up rounds. Hey, this fund's 3X, 4X, it's now up 5X. We have an IPO that's imminent. You go to an investor meeting every year and you do your dog and pony show, you know, like your like CFOs do with um, with their analysts or with their investors. And the first question was always, hey, great quarter. So glad that the fund is performing well. Your IRRs are top quartile. But when is the next distribution? When am I going to get paid? I've been in it for six years. This is now seven years and counting. I'm, at, I'm up to year eight. What's your plan to liquidate the fund and give me my money back? And uh, you know, if you're if you're a private company and you're getting getting these questions all the time, you have as a CFO, you can explain. Here's our timeline for an IPO, and here's our thinking, and here's what we're here's what our plans are to return liquidity to our investors. But if you're a fund manager, you know you're relying on uh, on the entrepreneurs and their liquidity plans, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, try. If you're uh, if you're at Founders Fund, which is Peter Thiel's fund, his biggest positions in in like the early Founders Fund was uh, Airbnb. Uh, I think it was just went public this year. Palantir just went public this year, and then SpaceX. Who knows when SpaceX is going to get public? Like, right. try making Elon Musk do anything, <laughs> uh, much less get his company public. So Peter's answer has got to be like, "Hey, I had a great quarter. I uh, I can't make any promises about SpaceX. I'm just going to extend the fund. You know, we're now year 17." Please read the fine print in your LP agreement. I can extend the fund as long as I want to. Right. And when I have money, I'll, I'll give it to you. So those early LPs are, you know, they're looking for liquidity and taking some money off the table for all, all, all kinds of good reasons. And that just doesn't happen in, in VC today. And if that continues, VC as an asset class will, will just be an afterthought. It'll be, it won't ever be as big as private equity or as big as it should be because it's not solving a key problem. So I'm hoping that PVC can help solve the problem and really help the whole asset class too. Well, since we have your brain already churning and the audience is going to be very lucky to hear all of this insight, but let's focus on for just a moment. So we've already talked about what makes a great CFO, maybe what you look for in a CFO and the fact that that absolutely trickles down into company operations and being profitable and creating great returns for LPs. Can you walk through just a bit on what you're looking for if there's a CFO who's going through the fundraising process. I know we had a we had Brian Hughes, who was an ex-KPMG partner on the podcast recently, and he talked okay. about how to be prepared and all of the organizational flow. But yeah. do you have any advice for somebody who's actively fundraising and they're in a finance seat and they are probably stressed about how the process <laughs> is going to go and whether or not they can raise their next round or how it's going to look? Do you have advice for, you know, maybe what a ideal target for practical might be or anything that you look for particularly so that they may have a way to route their decision-making process? I know it's a very broad-based yeah. question. I, no, I, think, I think the best advice to CFOs is something you said before about having that CEO relationships, you know, it's, that's really important. And whether, frankly, whether or not it's a good relationship or not, you have to take your cues off of your, uh, your CEO because it is a team sport. So in, in many of my cases, I've had CEOs who were very strong at product and marketing. And so they would kind of amp stuff up. You know, they would, they would tell a story and there's always a, um, there's a happy ending and there's a hero in the story and it's just, it's marketing 101. 
the CFO has got to be the counterpoint to that. You got to be prepared for sure. And you have to be able to tell a story with, with financials and data and kind of ground people, investors in reality. And, and that way, I think they feel like there's an inspirational CEO, but also someone who, who is on the team, who's very complimentary and who can, who can uh, keep the company from running out of cash. And if things don't work according to plan, there's a backup plan and, uh, and this person's got it. Some CEOs are, you know, are very, very buttoned up and maybe not as charismatic and it's just maybe more introverted. And so their, their role tends to be more to focus on what they're good at, but, you know, leave a lot of the, uh, the effort to the CFO. Uh, and I've been in those roles too, where I've been, you know, really solo fundraising and, and, and then you have to be inspiring and show the opportunity and the growth opportunities as well as being grounded. So a little bit, a little bit of it is just making sure you understand your role on the team. What's the CEO good at and, and not good at, you know, be honest about that. Certainly being prepared and knowing where the what the data is and anticipating questions is uh, you know, that's that's a big part of it. And then the other, the other advice which I see CFOs, especially younger ones, they do they do this all the time, is they kind of they they don't know how to answer questions where there's uh there's fuzziness. You know, they either get too too optimistic or they hedge too much. And I think for I think for a CFO, like especially in a fundraising context where you're gonna be with this investor for a long time. It's okay to say I don't know, I'm not sure, you know, and let me come back to you with a uh, with a thoughtful, prepared answer. Um, here's what I think, but here are the, you know, here are the caveats or the assumptions and here's what I have to go research and don't, you know, don't leave yourself exposed by putting yourself out and, and answering a question and then just not having it backed up or not having it, uh, followed through, you know, investors will always figure that out in diligence and, and God forbid they don't, but they invest. And then now you're on your board or you're working with them every day. If stuff comes out later, that's the worst thing. It's worse. It's, it's the worst thing for you as a CFO. It's the worst thing for the, you know, it's bad for the company. Um, you don't want to be in that position either. So I think just transparency, honesty, you know, very important, knowing your role versus the CEO or others, very important. And then definitely making sure you're prepared on the financials, the data, the data room, having all that stuff, you know, uh, prepared and and having a, a team kick it through before you turn over investors is very important. Well, there is a point of every podcast where I say, if you're listening right now, you need to go click that back 30 second button a few times and just re-listen <laughs> to good advice. The Transparency there also creates a level of accountability and then just also inspires more patient capital, which is really what you're looking for in the private investment universe. So understanding what's operating, what's happening. And if you're overly optimistic or just overly data-driven and can't communicate effectively, it's it's a big struggle to fundraise in the CFO role. But yeah. your advice is really, really sound. And I want to ask one more question here, and it's something I ask at the end, and I'm considering moving this question up because it's always so interesting to hear the unique perspectives of the guests we have on this podcast, especially as we move into a new season, all from the investing side. But do you feel, and again, this is completely industry agnostic, whatever you feel is just interesting and top of mind to you, is there something in the world right now that you feel is completely underestimated? And if so, is there somebody that is inspiring you who is addressing that issue? That is a broad question. I do think, yeah, I think there are a couple of there are a couple of you know trends and things that I think are are underestimated. I think actually my colleague Dave McClure is one of the ones who uh, who really highlighted this to me early and has uh, kept me inspired for a long time. And that is just the uh, the number of entrepreneurs who are outside of the valley, outside of the U.S., from just different and uh, and diverse backgrounds and geographies, and their their ability to iterate and build businesses and access capital now is uh, is so great relative to even ten years ago. Uh, or certainly 20 years ago, that it's quite astonishing. I think we will be, I think we'll be stunned in the next 10 to 15 years by the 
types of companies that get started outside of the valley, um, all all over the world, the types of entrepreneurs who start them, who uh, who don't you know don't meet our expectations or our thoughts on um, what entrepreneurs should look like, or their backgrounds and where they went to school and you know what their particular situations were. But I think there's, there's a large untapped human potential that is just now unlocking. And it's happening because VCs, but investors are globalizing. They're more willing to take those risks than they than they used to be, for sure. And founded startups, we probably made half our investments outside of the U.S. by the time we got to our fourth fund, and uh, where that's the one that I was the the COO and, and partner for. And even that, I think, will be like the fact that we're making half our investments in the U.S. and only half out. I think twenty years from now, we'll we'll look back on that and say, "Wow, we just missed a big opportunity by not being more aggressive." and in Africa, in India, and in Southeast Asia, like those are all opportunities that we're, you know, we're we're only scratching the surface on, and I think it only it only accelerates from here. So I love I love being in the vanguard of that. That's exciting. What's something you're looking forward to in the next twelve months? Well, I you know the uh, the focus right now is the uh, the fund we're working on. We've had a number of these SPVs. They've all been successful. That's kind of portfolio by portfolio, and I think that's been. You know, it's been uh, great working on these deals to kind of prove about the, the concept and work out some of the kinks. But actually having a fund where we can then diversify and go across 10 to 20 different portfolios and do this in a more systematic way, I think it's just a game changer for, you know, for us and, uh, and for the industry. Like I said before, venture, I don't think venture will be around if you know, they can't promise realized returns to investors in three, five, seven years. 10 to 17 years is just too long for realized returns. And that's not a time frame that most investors can stomach. So creating a a way to to value these assets in a in a fair way, in a transparent way, create some liquidity for investors, be able to have a little bit of a marketplace, and uh, and maybe take a company like this and scale it and take it public. That would be that you know that's not going to happen in twelve months. Maybe that's the five to ten year time frame, but that's the longer term goal. I can't think of anybody else who has a more unique perspective on the entire ecosystem of the valley and financing innovation. So excited to have you on, and I know that we're going to talk again soon. But thanks so much. Is there any way that anyone could reach out to you regarding uh, maybe a potential investment opportunity or get in touch with the practical team? Yeah, totally happy to do that. Our our website is practicalvc.com, so you can just go there and and check out the team and what we're working on. There's some excellent content there from from my colleagues at the firm, and then I am at Aman at practicalvc.com. Excellent. This has been the Modern CFO Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me, Amon. I know we'll talk again soon, and I can't wait until that happens. Great. Likewise. <laughs>